for sports search managers. Good morning, guys, and welcome to Cultivating Roots. We're excited to have uh, Nick McKenna from Texas A&M University and the current STMA president. Nick, I hope the weather's improved down there in Texas. You know, we read a lot about the winter storms down there, and I'm sure it's been a challenge to get your facilities ready for the 2021 uh, spring season. Uh, I know you have baseball and softball that you've been uh, dealing with and trying to get those fields prepped. So uh, we're excited that uh, you've been able to take some time with us today and talk to us about the Sports Turf Managers Association and Texas A&M and uh, how you've come up through the Sports Turf Managers Association and how you've come up through the industry. So why don't you start us off today and Tell us a little bit about your role at Texas A&M, and uh, we'll just jump right in. Okay. Yeah, great. Thanks, Robbie. Just for a record, yeah, it's uh, sunny and on our way to 70 here in Texas, finally, after a brutal last week. So we are happy to see the sun and uh, happy to be warming up to kind of normal temperature weathers. But um, I am currently the assistant athletic field maintenance manager for the Texas A&M Athletic Department. Um, I've been in this role now for a little over five years but have been back at A&M for just over 10. I am jointly responsible with my immediate supervisor, Craig Potts, who's the, the head guy over everything here. Uh, we kind of jointly work in maintaining and overseeing all of the athletic playing surfaces for the A&M athletic department. So um, that's football, baseball, softball, soccer, track, and then a lot of the landscape areas around those facilities, including our our tennis facility. Um, and then obviously, just like a lot of y'all, we get our hands, we're, we're multi I call us utility players. So we, uh, we basically get used anywhere where we can be, where our skills can come in useful. So we get our hands in on facilities and and event management and stuff like that as needed. But uh, that's, that's kind of my primary role um, at this point here. And we, we mentioned the cold weather y'all have had down there in Texas. And in our pre-production here, we, we talked about, you know, how you were getting ready to start baseball. So how did that uh, cold weather and snow, you know, loss of power in Texas, how did that impact Texas A&M baseball and softball this weekend? Yeah. So, you know, as I told y'all, I hope this is a once in a lifetime event. Um, This was, this is way out of normal for anything we've ever experienced down in Texas. We went 134 hours, I think is what our weather people said, where we were actually below freezing Um, and, you know, in a normal period, we might go below freezing overnight and stay there for seven or eight hours. And then the next day we're kind of back to normal. Um, so any kind of, that kind of cold period is totally unknown to us. Uh, and then snowfall, this is the second snowfall we've had this year. Normally we get snow once every three to five years. So uh, it's been kind of a really weird and challenging spring so for us so far. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it's been challenging down in Texas uh, with all the cold weather, snow, uh, you know, loss of power. We've been pretty lucky here in the Carolinas. You know, it was a deal. Unfortunately, we knew the weather that was coming. It was being forecasted well in advance so we could kind of prepare. But we had our tarps down on our baseball surfaces knowing that we had opening day coming up this past weekend. And uh, we we were going to do everything we could to be prepared. So we wound up, all things told, with about four inches of snow and probably a half inch of kind of an ice slushy mix 
kind of over the top of the fields that certainly made for an interesting week, especially with the cold temperatures where we were. Um, my baseball coach was calling me on Monday, wanting to clear the field, worried that we wouldn't get it done before the weekend. And he's like, I'll get you all the baseball players and we'll go clear it. And I'm like, coach, you can't find shovels in town right now. Every You can't find propane. You can't find kerosene. You can't find a scoop shovel. Um, I'm like, we probably have eight to 10 of them just through our natural work. So you can give me all the guys you want, but 30 of them are going to be standing there watching while 10 of them scoop. So, so I had to kind of pump the brakes numerous times on Monday, Tuesday, just to say, be patient with me. We'll get this, you know, let's let mother nature work for us a little bit, hopefully, you know, and I, I wanted the snow on the field for, for a little bit longer. Cause early in the week, we were really, really low temperatures, um, single digit temperatures overnight. So obviously with Bermuda grass and we are overseeded with rye, but you know, as I told Matt, our, uh, our Bermuda grass is already starting to come out of dormancy. Uh, we had some of our non overseeded fields were probably 50, 60% green already. Uh, I don't know that baseball and softball were there quite there yet because of the overseeding, but we did have green Bermuda already. So anything we could do to help protect the Bermuda, I was, I was trying to advocate for. And our head coach and I are we're really good friends. And you can't get to Omaha if you miss that one or two practices. You know, what was funny is the week before, like knowing the weather that we had coming, he kept calling me. He's like, you know, if we can get out there today, great. If we can't, he goes, we've been on the field as much as anybody else in the country this year. Like we've, we're in a good position. I don't want to get anybody hurt being out in the cold unnecessarily. What did y'all ultimately do to clear the field and, and get it playable that week? Patience was the big, like, basically we stepped in, Craig and my boss went to him and was like, hey, we're not going to do anything until Wednesday. Uh, we need that blanket of snow for the insulation. And they were calling for freezing rain on Wednesday. We weren't supposed to get above freezing. We actually kind of got a little lucky with weather. I'm not going to lie. So, um we had freezing rain early Wednesday morning, but by afternoon, we actually got just to that freezing point. We were 32, maybe 33 degrees. And fortunately, the fields, because they were insulated by the snow, the ground never froze. So our, surf, our, our soil temperatures were above freezing. So it kept it from freezing instantly on contact. So the rain actually worked in our favor for a little bit and helped us melt off um, some of it. Uh, probably knocked down four inches to two. Uh, so we went in on Wednesday. I basically took our tarp tubes, stuck it underneath the edge of the tarp, got uh, whatever heaters I could find. We basically, we have some radiant heaters that we use at football. Uh, so I took one of them and just pointed it at the tarp tube, started blasting hot air through there. Um, so about the first hour, I actually started to melt parts of the tarp tube. So I had to kind of adjust that, but uh, started pushing heat in underneath the tarp to try and then melt as much as I could off the tarp. Um, and then I let that work kind of most of the morning. And then uh, our road conditions around here were pretty crummy. So we couldn't even get our workers in until Wednesday afternoon. A few of them started feeling comfortable being able to come on the roads. You know, I grew up in Iowa, so I grew up in the snow and the ice and it was nothing for me. But for these Texas kids, they're, they're not used to it. So I wasn't going to jeopardize anybody's health or safety just to try and get a baseball game in. By Wednesday afternoon, we were able to get about half our crew in. So we... Uh, we started kind of the first focus were the tarps at baseball and softball, getting the tarp areas cleared. And uh, we actually bought one of those plastic Arctic plows uh, a few years ago. We bought it with the intent of using it to push up cores when we core aerate to help break them up and kind of push them up into piles, make it easier to collect. Doesn't didn't quite work out the way we intended for that, but we still have it here. So I hooked that onto our sand pro 
And uh, it's basically, it's a plastic plow and it's got a rounded bottom edge. So I felt fairly safe putting that on our, our tarp. So basically I just started at the middle of the infield with that and just began whatever wasn't melting. Um, I just started pushing the ice and snow off all the way to the borders of the tarp. And then uh, once we got everything to the edge, put air, blue air under with our turbine blower to get all the water off of it. And then my crew and I, we went around with our just utility vehicles and shoveled everything that was on the edge up by hand. We just scoop shovels and cart load, cart load, cart load, haul it off. Um, we did that same thing on our aprons. So by the end of Wednesday, we had the entire kind of inner part of the field cleared and then uh, went home that night and came back Thursday morning and started on the outfield. First thing, basically, we were able to use some of our utility tractors where we could just, you know, they've got kind of a leveling site guide on them. And I've done it enough with other things on the field, spoils and verticut clippings and cores where I could put the bucket down just on the grass level get it level and just kind of skim across the surface. So I would skim it into piles and scoop it up and we'd put it into utility vehicles and haul it off. And uh, I had kind of a four or five person cleanup crew coming behind me with other vehicles and, and shovels and anything that we missed, they were collecting. And shoot, while we were out doing that, the baseball team came out, took the tarp off. You know, we were working in left and center. They put the tarp in right. They came out and practiced Thursday on the infield for about an hour, hour and a half, got their work in. And then we were actually, I was shocked. We actually were able to get the entire outfield cleared in one day on Thursday. Um, we went from about eight to six that day, but Got it totally done. Same thing. We did the exact same thing down at softball. So we're, Craig and I were running simultaneous crews, doing both fields, trying to get both teams the option to be ready to play. And then, yeah, after that, Friday, because we had pushed games back for the weekend to Saturday, Friday, we were able to focus on the warning track because the warning track was the real mess from all that vehicle traffic, you know, hauling loads and loads in and out. You know, I wanted to leave as much of that snow and ice on the warning track as I could to help keep it from just turning into a slop pit. So Friday we had our work cut out trying to bust up chunks of ice and get the last remnants off the warning track. But uh, our baseball team out there went through their normal like pre-weekend practice. You know, they did a two and a half hour practice. We let the visiting team came in and, and they did a two hour practice that night. And after that, it was just kind of business as normal for us from our crew and the weather started coming back around. But some of it was luck. Some of it was just roll up the sleeves and get after it. Sounds sounds like a uh, normal opening weekend, maybe in the Northeast. Yeah. You know, I'd gone through that experience one time before when I was at Virginia Tech. So I spent four years in Blacksburg um, before coming back here to A&M. So uh, we had one year when I was at Virginia Tech about a week before opening day, we had 10 inches of snow on the infield tarp and I had 18 out in the outfield. I kind of had an idea of like, how do we attack this? Now, obviously I couldn't, you know, for our outfield there, that quantity of snow, we brought in a snowblower and, and kind of skimmed the surface. And that was probably the thing I tried the hardest not to laugh about when our head coach called me on Monday. He's like, you know, we got to start getting this cleared off. He goes, you know, anybody with a snowblower? Coach, we get snow like once every three years. Who in the heck down here do you think has a snowblower? But yeah. like I said, he and I are such good friends that we can laugh about it. Yeah. Well, Nick, you talked a little bit about your time in Blacksburg. I guess that stint was kind of you were at A&M before, then Blacksburg, back to A&M. Just if you can kind of talk to us a little bit, just kind of about your career, the progression of your career and, uh, you know, how how you got into this, how you, how you got to where you are today. So, uh, so I was born and raised in Iowa, 
grew up a farm boy, similar, kind of like Clark, a uh, little different production in, in Iowa than what they're doing over in the Carolinas, though. I didn't uh, dabble in the tobacco like he did. But yeah, I grew up on a hog farm. My family owned and operated our own hog facility um, where we sold about 5,000 hogs a year. Um, it's just a family operation, but that's kind of where I got my initial exposure to, you know, my love for the outdoors, my love for agriculture, all my family, my uncles, extended family, they were involved in production ag, um, like the crop side of it. So I was very familiar with growing plants as well as raising livestock, you know, and then just as a way to make money growing up or actually to, you know, to supplement the family income, dad did a lot of mowing around the community, whether that was local cemeteries, churches, obviously we had the acreage at home. Um, we were responsible for mowing. Um, we'd, we'd, we would do a couple neighbors yards to help them out and stuff. So that's kind of where I got my first turf grass stuff. Um, as far as that goes, you know, and I never, never even really thought about a career in the sports field side of things until I got to college. Um, initially I went to college, I went to Iowa state initially started to major in agricultural biochemistry. Um, I loved math and science through school and thought that was a good tie in of agriculture and to being able to combine that with science. And I thought I could go make a lot of money doing that because that was a pretty big, uh, area growing area at the time. And that's where I started in college. And after about my first nine months in school, kind of figured out, I, I don't want to be cooped up in a laboratory the rest of my life. What type of things were you looking at doing with that degree? Uh, I wanted to do like genetics. So either plant genetic development, you know, it would have tied into turf grass and potentially if I'd wanted where I could have gone into, you know, new plant development. I was probably leaning more towards either the chemical or production egg side of, you know, you get all these, the roundup ready crops and stuff that was kind of front edge at that time. Um, so that was kind of initially what I was thinking, you know, I, I didn't really know, but I, I knew it interested me, but yeah, after about three quarters of the way through my freshman year, I figured out that wasn't what I wanted to do. Uh, I had also been very involved similar to Clark with FFA. Um, I was a state FFA officer in Iowa. So very involved with agriculture, ag education and all that coming through high school and being a state officer was around that a lot. So the natural at that point, I'm like, well, a natural kind of turn for me is maybe I'll just, I'll go to a double major of ag education and animal science. And then, you know, I can maybe either go teach or I can go back um, if I want to go back to farming, I've got the animal science degree. So I did that for most of my sophomore year, actually. My sophomore year, I wound up being the state president for the FFA in Iowa and kind of got near the end of that and was starting to get burned out on the egghead side of things. And um, the young lady I was dating at the time, who's now my wife, she was also majoring in egg education and kind of started looking at our future. And I'm like, boy, two egg teachers um, in one family probably would be a struggle. You're not going to see each other a lot and just, you know, and I'm like, I'm not sure it's what I want to do. Teaching felt like a fallback for me. It didn't feel like a passion for me. So I kind of reevaluated again after my sophomore year, trying to figure out what do I really want to do and uh, went back to kind of my childhood on the farm. And I said, you know, I loved growing up on the family farm. Unfortunately, at that time, the hog markets in the U.S. were terrible. So I just looked at us and there's not really a viable future for me to go back um, and get back into farming as much as I would like to. So then I said, well, the other thing I really enjoyed was the lawn care stuff. And I had I had made some good friends through my FFA connections with the turf grass program, the 
turf grass program coordinator at Iowa State. Technically falls under the horticulture department. And she had pestered me for a couple of years. Like, when am I going to get one of you FFA kids, one of you state officer kids to come over to our hort department and, and major in something there? So I had a conversation with her and I said, you know, tell me about the turf grass management program and kind of went through everything. And I said, yeah, I think. I think there's a viable future for me there. And, you know, I grew up playing everything as far as sports. Uh, I was a call. I professed college sports junkie. Um, I loved watching college sports, loved watching college football. I was um, really passionate about that. And so then, yeah, kind of going to the turf grass program. I'm like, man, if there's, there's an option where I can go work on sports fields and watch and be around sports and, and make a career out of that. I'm like, that, that really sounds appealing to me. The other side of it was, I was a junior in college coming into the turf grass program at Iowa state. And at that time we probably had a hundred, 110 kids in the turf grass program. And if I had to guess, if we had 110 kids, 105 of them were interested in golf and they'd been in that program for a while. So um, I went into it. I'm like, you know, I'm already behind the eight ball on these guys. Like there's 105 guys that have known this is what they want to do. You know, I'm, I'm trying to play catch up where, you know, I'm, I'm just going to be behind them if I try and do the golf side of things. And it just didn't necessarily appeal to me as much as the sports turf side. So I really, I kind of said, I'm going to go down this sports turf path and just kind of went tunnel vision. And, you know, at the time Iowa state had, had Dr. Dave Minner, who was one of the most well-known and respected people, uh, in the sports field side of the industry at that time. Um, and he was very involved with STMA, had a lot of backing to his name. So I was like, yeah, you know, we've got this guy who's really highly respected and I think can be a really good uh, kind of resource for me. So from there, yeah, I just put my focus fully on the sports field side of the industry. And it actually took me, even being in the turf grass program then though, um, I really didn't get my first on-field experience till my final semester at college because I kept I kept hounding. Uh, Mike Andreessen was the head athletic field manager at Iowa State at that time, and um, I would reach out to him about twice a semester and just say, "Hey, you know, I'm new in the turf program, have an interest in sports fields, would love to come work with you if you have an opening on your crew." And you know, he didn't have anything for the, about the first. Uh, first couple of years. So finally, my last semester there, he had an opening on his crew, called me. So I spent my last fall. It took me an extra semester to finish college with all the major changes. Um, but I spent my fall working for the athletic department at Iowa State. And that's where I really got my first on-field kind of uh, experience. Um, so that was really, really beneficial for me. And and Mike was, Mike's a phenomenal ambassador for the industry, uh, phenomenal mentor. Just, he was very involved with STMA at that time. I think he was actually, he actually might've been, I don't know if he was president while I was there, but he was on the path to the presidency for the STMA. So that had that example set for me very early on. He was one of the first certified sports field managers. So I had that, you know, kind of mentor precedence set for me very early on. Um, but yeah, when it got close to, I finally graduating at Iowa state, my, my wife, Holly, who was my fiance then at that time, kind of knew she wanted to go to grad school and she was looking at Texas A&M. Um, we had visited A&M a couple times because my brother was down here doing his PhD in meat science. Um, so we'd become familiar with the university and, uh, she, she knew she wanted to do her master's degree down here. So I told Mike, I said, Hey, if you know any jobs down in, in the Texas area, uh, I'd be interested just because we're looking at potentially moving down to, to Texas at some point. So Mike made a phone call to Leo Gertz, to Leo and Craig down here and uh, just said, Hey, I got a guy that's graduating, looking for a job. Uh, if you know anything in the area, let me know. 
and it just timed out really well. Leo goes, actually, I've got a guy who's just leaving. Um, so I have a position. He said, he told Mike, he goes, if, if you're, uh, is, you know, he's a good kid, good worker, Mike vouched for me. And Leo goes, job's his one of those things. I had met Leo. Um, when I would come down and visit my brother, I, at one time I'd reached out to him and just said, Hey, can you show me around? And I would love to see all facilities. So I had met him, but he didn't know me from Adam. Um, he didn't know me as a person. So that was a pretty big leap of faith. I thought on his part, just to go off the word of Mike Andreessen and say jobs his, if he wants it. So, um, sounds like you and Clark had kind of similar entries into the you know, the collegiate sports field world. Clark and I have had that discussion. We serve a lot of similarities in our paths. So, uh, other than the bio Kim, uh, I have, <laughs> I have never, I have never come close to anything resembling bio Kim, uh, you know, the, the ag bio Kim side. I've, uh, I was, was never even, that strong in the science and, and, uh, and mathematics. Even when I first got into the turf grass side of it, I kept trying to f- think of a way. I'm like, how can I still tie in the biochemist? Like, you know, I was like, man, you know what I'd love to do is I want to figure out a way to breed a Bermuda grass that has bluegrass characteristics. I still think that would be a fun project to try and do. And we're kind of getting there with some of these new Bermuda grass varieties with their coloring and their growth characteristics. I'm like, if I can figure out a way to get Bermuda grass growth habit and aggressiveness, but get the bluegrass texture and color, I'm like, I, that'd be the way to go. But I still think that would be a neat one to do, but I don't think I'm smart enough anymore to, to go that route. So, so how long was the first step? I guess. So, uh, first in at A&M, I actually moved down about six months ahead of, ahead of Holly because she was a semester behind me in in school. So, um, I wound up spending just about just under three years, just over two and a half, like two years, eight months at A&M, the first stint, because she came down six months after me and then did a master's program, which was two years. Um, so yeah, I spent two years just as a general groundskeeper down here, which was really good for me because, um, the baseball program at Iowa state had been cut while I was a student there. So I had very little dirt experience. Um, we had a little bit of softball there, but nothing like what we have down here in the South. So down here was the first real baseball, softball infield skin maintenance experience that I got. So it was really good for me to come down and go through that grind and, um, start to cut my teeth and learn that side of the industry. Um, but yeah, I spent just over two and a half years on the first stint. Then uh, when she finished her master's degree, had an opportunity. She actually got a, a teaching job, teaching an egg ed teaching job about 15 miles down the road from my hometown. So we actually moved back to Iowa um, okay. just to try and get back close to family. All of our family is in Iowa. We want, you know, I honestly grew up thinking I would never leave the state. Um, I didn't have any reason to, had no desire to. Um, I thought I was just going to be one of these Iowa boys that stays there forever. So we moved back. Uh, I had interviewed and thought I had a really good chance at getting a teaching job at one of the community colleges back around home. And then that ended up falling through. They hired uh, a kid that went through their own program, uh, which he did a phenomenal job with it. So I kind of scrambled, wound up working for a landscape company for a year. Um, It was a 10,000 tree nursery production facility. And then they did landscape installs. Um, he was a classmate of mine at Iowa state. So I wound up going back to work for them for a year and then, uh, gave sales a try. Uh, so I went to work for the local Toro distributor in Iowa for about nine months, 
to see if I wanted to, uh, if sales was something that would fit me. So I sold commercial grounds equipment to golf courses, sports fields, municipalities um, in central Iowa for about nine months before saying, yeah, I, I really miss being on the fields. Um, I, sales isn't for me, at least not yet. Maybe someday further down the road when when I beat my body to, to crap and can't actually physically do the work anymore. But um, so, yeah, kind of found an in-between there, went to work for a, a, a golf course as their grounds manager for about three months while I figured out what my next step was. And so what led you to Blacksburg? I'd always flirted with the idea of going back to grad school, um, had actually kind of kicked myself for not working on a master's while I was at A&M. Cause I said, you know, if I did three or six credits a semester while I'd been here for that two and a half, three years, I could have almost finished my master's degree in, in that time. Um, so it was one of those things I'd always thought about going back and doing and so it timed up. Um, Virginia Tech had a graduate assistantship position that is funded by the athletic department that came open. Um, basically, where they pay for grad, the athletic department pays for your grad school. And when you're not doing class stuff and research stuff, you go work for their athletic department. So I was like, you know, that's that's kind of a really good tie in for me. It's it it's let, lets me kill two birds with one stone. I can go back, start working on an advanced degree and I can get back on the athletic fields, which is ultimately where I want to be. So um you know, did a little bit of research. I actually had a similar offer from Iowa State. They were creating a similar position and kind of thought about it and said, you know, I've, I've been at Iowa State. I know their facilities. I know their people. Um, yeah, it'd be comfortable for me. Um, but what does it do to help develop me as a, as a field manager, as a person? Not necessarily as much. So, you know, Dr. Goatley was at Virginia Tech. And I think we all know his name from the, the sports turf book, Palua Crayons and Goatley book. I call it the sports turf Bible. But, you know, a couple of phone calls with him and you know, kind of made the decision. I'm like, yeah, you know, I think I can really benefit myself, benefit my career from going someplace different, working with new people, new facilities. I said, you know, Virginia Tech's in the transition zone. So if I go there, I'll have been in Iowa where we had cool season. I've been in Texas where we had all warm season. I've been in the transition zone where we've got a combination of both. So I felt like if I go there, I would be able to set myself up from that point to go anywhere that I needed in the country and be confident in my abilities to grow whatever I needed to. Um, so yeah, we picked up blind faith, made a move to Blacksburg. Um, I had never visited, uh, first, found an apartment online. First time we saw it was the day we moved in. But yeah, picked up, moved to Blacksburg and we wound up being there for four years. Uh, the first two, I was in a graduate assistantship position where I worked, yeah, I worked on my master's degree and I, I probably worked more for athletics than I did for my degree stuff just because that's what I enjoyed. So I would do 40 or 50 hours working um, for athletics and then do all my schoolwork on the side and at night and around that. And I uh, got to after my second year, my assistantship funding was basically coming to an end. I wasn't quite done with the master's degree. I still needed to write my thesis, which I unfortunately still need to do to this day. And Dr. Goatley reminds me of that every now and then. But uh, athletic department had a full-time position that had opened up right at that time. So I kind of slid right into that role and spent the next two years working as a full-time um, facility coordinator, grounds coordinator for the Virginia Tech Athletic Department. Um, so that got me to 2011, basically. Um, I, had pri I was primarily overseeing baseball, doing a lot with football at Virginia Tech. And obviously I got my hands in on everything else too. But um, around that time, Virginia Tech was looking at switching the baseball field to a synthetic surface. 
And it just timed up at the same time. Leo called me from A&M and said, hey, baseball guy just left. We're about to start a $29 million renovation on the baseball stadium. You know, he goes, I'm, I'm hitting the stage in my career where I'm starting to really think about retiring. And we would love if you're interested to bring you back and kind of get you in a position where when I retire, Craig will move up, you would move up, you know, and then down the road, eventually when Craig retires, this could all be yours, Nick, we'd, we'd love to see you in that role. So kind of reached out to me and we, Holly and I discussed it. We, we loved A&M the first time we were here. Um, always said we stayed in contact with Craig and Leo. I always said, if the timing's right, the opportunity's right, we will be back because this is a special place. And um, so it just, things worked out, you know, I didn't want to maintain a synthetic surface necessarily unless I had to eat. So yeah, we picked up and moved back to Texas and, uh, you know, I walked in day one on the job coming back here. I could literally see from the parking lot out onto the field. That's where we were at in the, the construction phase of the stadium. And that was a very interesting, challenging fall, really good learning experience. Um, but yeah, then I spent the next three, four seasons kind of just mainly overseeing baseball, helping on all the other facilities back here as needed. Um, and unfortunately my, uh, advancement up the career chain here didn't happen because Leo retired. Leo unexpectedly passed away um, in 2015. And um, so that started the chain of, of what we'd always discussed. And that's yeah, kind of where it put me to the role where I'm at now, where I'm kind of over helping Craig oversee everything um, on a daily basis now. But. Awesome. Well, it sounds like it's been quite the journey. I can appreciate your affinity for Texas A&M. My father actually went to A&M and he's in his mid seventies now. And I think uh, he still holds it in very high regard from his years as a student there. And we're looking really forward to next season. I think my Appalachian Mountaineers were actually supposed to come down and play play y'all. I I don't know if that is, uh, that's probably still not in the cards, but that was. I think that's off the schedule now. Yeah, we were, that was going to be our, uh, I I don't know. That was, that was going to be the trip that my dad and I came down and, took in college station because I've actually never been there, but we're looking really forward to that. So what's what's funny is my brother, for some reason, growing up was an A&M fan. You know, I think as kids, we all maybe just kind of pick a random school um, who we cheer for. And sometimes it's local, sometimes it's not. So my brother always had, would find A&M stuff. And, you know, uh, obviously a younger I'm four years younger than him, kind of idolized him growing up. So I kind of paid attention, but at the same time, you know, I picked a different school. I was an Alabama fan for some reason. So I ran around with an Alabama starter jacket on in Iowa, (laughs) some dummy, but, um, so I kind of knew about A&M and like I said, my first experience, the very first time I came down to visit him was in the, uh, the fall of 1999. And that actually was the, I would come down at Thanksgiving breaks usually, um, from college and come visit him. Well, that was always when AM would play Texas, their big rivalry game. Well, 99 was also the year that their uh, the bonfire tragedy bonfire, happened. Yeah. So yeah. AM has this tradition where they'd build this giant bonfire and burn it the night before they'd play Texas. Um, so the very first time I came down here to visit him was, was the year that the bonfire collapsed. And I mean, I literally was driving through the night, the night that the stack collapsed and, and woke up the next morning of the news that that tragedy had struck. And um, the saying around A&M is you know, they talk about what a special place it is. Uh, they'll tell people from the outside looking in, you can't understand it from the inside looking out, you can't explain it. Um, and so that was really, 
I got to experience it from the inside. So I was an outsider, um, which I wouldn't have understand, understood it, but I got to be here that week and kind of see it from the inside and, and really learn what a unique and special place it was and how tradition rich it is and how important the traditions are here and to watch the university and the athletic department and the community all come together around that tragedy. And, um, you know, my first Texas A&M football game was the Texas game. Um, I'm sitting in the stands and Texas was ranked like fifth and I think A&M was ranked like 24th or 21st or something. And, losing down the whole game, like 17 at halftime, they found a way to rally back. And, you know, Texas is driving at the end of the game with a chance to win it. And they get a strip sack and recover the football. And, you know, to this day, I still have the image burned in my head of the guy that recovered the fumble, like on his hands and knees pointing to the sky, like in praise, just sends chills down my spine just to think about what a unique and, special memory for that to be my first experience around A&M. So I was kind of hooked from there. Nick, you talked about, uh, you mentioned some names. Uh, I mean, Leo Gertz and, and, and uh, Mike Andreessen and uh, Dr. Minnick and uh, Mike Goatley. I mean, those are some giants uh, in our industry. As far as I'm concerned, those are names you've worked for some of the best and been exposed to some of the best in our industry. Um, I didn't realize that I hadn't, I've never really thought about that with you, but you really have worked with some, some folks that have, you know, I've never had the, uh, I knew Leo and, and, and we all miss Leo. What, what a great guy he was. And just, uh, uh, one of those people that even if you didn't know him would, would help you out. Uh, if you had questions and, and just, he was, he was a friend the first time you met him, but, um, all those guys, they, I knew them through STMA. And so thinking about that, how's your, your, your journey start in STMA? You know, you've told us a little bit about your career, but, uh, you are the STMA president right now. And I can't help but think of how proud all those guys are of you for being in that position. But, uh, Tell us a little bit about your background and your, your journey through STMA and how'd you get to be the, the STMA president? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, like you said, it, it kind of starts with the people that I was around and, you know, I like to think, I hope, like you said, those people are proud of progression I've taken. Um, I look at it as, you know, I'm a piece of their legacy. And so I'm trying to carry that on and build on it. But um, yeah, you know, it started for me at Iowa state with Dr. You know, Dr. Minner was uh, for years, the educational director on the board of directors at STMA. So, um, you know, I had that precedent set very early. I talked about how Mike was on the board of directors. So I saw very early on the importance of the association and being involved in it and, you know, how it could benefit you as a professional um, and how it could benefit your career. Uh, that standard, I think I just recognize, I, I recognize it in Mike and Dr. Minner very early on. Um, that it was something that was important to get involved with. Um, you know, like I said, Mike, Mike was on his ascension, I think, to the presidency um, while I was there and he was a CSFM and, um, you know, and as him as somebody that I, I wanted to emulate my career after someone I kind of uh, idolized and, and recognized as a really, really great mentor, someone I could, could model my career after. 
I said, you know, those, those are things I need to get involved with um, because it's what he did. And, you know, and then, yeah, the same thing. Leo was the same. Leo and Craig were the exact same way. Like you said, Leo never met a stranger. And if he did, you were friends. He, they became a friend within five minutes. Um, and Leo was always a huge advocate for the STMA and for the safe board. He served on the safe board for a number of years. And Craig was always very, very actively involved here in the Texas turf grass industry with our Texas turf grass association and the Texas STMA. And as a young, young guy, it was just one of those things I recognized, like this is something I need to get involved in. So I actually started, I think as a student, um, I inquired, I'm like, you know, are students allowed to be on committees? Um, so I think my senior year in college, I actually volunteered for a committee. I think I started on the conference education committee just because it was like, it was, I'm like, I'm a student. So the education side of it ties in and I don't know how actively involved I was, or I, I'm sure I didn't speak up um, because I was too intimidated or shy at that point, but started to get a feel for that committee process. And um, you know, what's great now is we've got the student challenge that we can use to help draw these turf grass kids in and get them to the conference and get them around, you know, all these industry people that didn't exist yet when I was a student. So I went to my first STMA conference, like the January after I graduated in December of 02 um, from Iowa state. And I went to my first conference in January of 03, right before I started for A&M. And, you know, it's once, once you get to the conference, it's hard not to be hooked on the association. It's hard not to be hooked on, on being involved in it just because the people you get to interact with and just the network you get to build and the education you receive. And so, yeah, from there, I just kind of grew, uh, you know, I ever, from that point on, I just, I wanted to be involved somehow. So the easiest way is committee volunteering. So I, I just kept volunteering for committee year after year. And I'd set it as a goal for myself. Eventually I wanted to get my CSFM. So um, I knew that was going to be a, it's not a quick process. It, it takes time to get the points necessary and the educational background and then the test. And um, so that was, you know, that was on my far out goal plan. And, you know, I always said, I'd been around all these people that I did involved involved on a national level. Yeah, it'd be neat to be involved at the board on the board level at some point. I don't expect that. Um, you know, I don't. That would be, you know, almost uh, not cocky, but I can't even think of the word I'm looking for right now. But it wasn't an expectation that yes, I'm gonna be on the board someday. But I always thought, you know, that's the neat way to give back and continue to to show the next generation and build a legacy that. The legacy I'm carrying on to continue that on and pass it down to the next generation. So yeah, from, you know, I got involved at the state association when I was in Virginia briefly, um, wound up getting on their state board a little bit before I left. I think I actually had to resign my position um, when we chose to move back to Texas and then move back here to Texas. And uh, I joke the Texas STMA kind of suckered me into uh, being their president we were at, uh, we are having a meeting and they're like, Hey, would you be willing to serve, serve as a board member at some point? And I'm like, Oh yeah, sure. And like, well, great. You're our president elect. And I went, wait, what? <laughs> they go, yeah, we, uh, we, we need somebody to go in the president elect role. We, we think you'd be good. So, uh, like my first year back in Texas, uh, put me a president elect Texas DMA next year. I was the president year after past president. Um, so, you know, I started as far as board service, I kept it kind of local. I went with my state association first. And then uh, from that standpoint, um, I don't remember who it was. Someone with the national STMA board reached out to me and 
said, you know, you've been involved at two different state chapters on their level, um, serving as an officer and your name keeps coming up um, amongst our discussions in the nominating committee that we think you'd be a really good candidate to eventually, you know, go on the board with, would national board service be something you'd be interested in? Cause you know, you've been involved with committees and you've been involved at the chapter level. And so I said, yeah, you know, I'd love to, to have that opportunity to give back and get involved. And uh, so, yeah, wound up getting slated on the ballot, uh, I don't know, five, six years ago and kind of express and say what my vision for STMA was back then. And it's funny to see how it's kind of evolved now after being on the board for a number of years. But uh, so, yeah, got on the board, elected as the, the college and university rep. I think that was a somebody had, had gotten elected to go up the presidency. I think it might have been Tim Van Lu at that point. So there was a one year term that had to be filled. I don't remember how it all worked out as far as year wise, but wound up basically being the college and university rep for almost two terms. And then they asked me if I'd be interested in working my way, going to the secretary treasurer role and then ascend, eventually ascend to the presidency or at least put my name on the ballot for it. And I said, you know, guys, I, I've enjoyed my time immensely working on this board. It's been great to experience the association from this side of it, you know, and anything I can do to give back to our industry. Um, you know, I'm here, that's what I'm here for. So I'm like, I would love to continue to be involved. Um, you know, I got put on the ballot for secretary treasurer a few years back and apparently I haven't made enough enemies or maybe I have made enough enemies that people elected me. Uh, <laughs> to put me on the board. And, and that started the natural, um, once I became secretary treasurer, that started me on that natural process to ascend to the presidency where I'm at now. And uh, that's kind of been, been the journey, I guess, as far as STMA goes. You talked about the uh, education or conference education committee that you worked on. What other committees did you work on and which ones oh. would you recommend that, that you really enjoyed? So, I mean, for me, for me, it was, you know, I, I wanted to mix up the experience as much as I can. So I think my standard protocol was I would volunteer for a committee for like two years just to get the, you know, first year's kind of learning experience. The next year I would say, okay, here's, you know, I feel confident in understanding how the committee worked, you know, expressing my opinion, giving my input. And then I wanted to branch out and kind of see what other different ones had to offer. So I've done conference education. I've done awards. I've done the student challenge committee. I have done information outreach. I've been on the membership committee. I've been on the certification committee. Um, and some of those, some years I'm all, I would volunteer for multiple committees at once just because I wanted to experience as much as I could. So I'd probably, I've probably been on about half the committees, if not slightly more. I always enjoy the conference education one just because it's fun to have a say or, you know, some involvement in what education is going to be offered at that year's conference. Really enjoy the student challenge one, just because I work at a university, you know, and so I work with, with, with students every single day. I look at that as kind of part of my role. Part of my role is, is teaching and mentoring and hopefully developing this next, the next wave of sports field managers that we're going to see, I hope. Um, so that's always fun. I, you know, I'm passionate about student involvement and, and getting them involved and exposed to the industry. So I always enjoyed that one. Um, certification was just kind of good for me to kind of understand. You can't be on that one until you are a certified sports field manager, but um, just to kind of have an understanding of how that program evolved and continues to evolve and what's all involved in it. I'm trying to think. Okay, you know, the awards, the awards I kind of, the awards I did self-servingly is I, I wanted an inside look kind of at 
what the field of the year process is um, in the hopes that someday it can, if I understand the process and how it's judged that I wanted to try and win some more fields of the year here, um, wherever I wind up. And, you know, I'm less concerned with that now as I've gotten older, I, I want my guys, the guys that work for me, I, I hope I want them to be the ones that go through that process. Cause um, that was something Craig and Leo let me do when I was here the first time was uh, I kept talking about, Hey, we should apply for the field of the year. I think, you know, Kyle Fields recognizes one of the best fields in the country. And um, I think it'd be neat to be able to claim that, that we were the sports turf managers association field of the year. And um, they said, well, if, you know, if you're interested in it, you fill out the app, um, you go through the process and if we win it, great. And if not, it's a good experience for you. So uh, I did that in 2000. We won the award in 2004. We were the 2004 college football field of the year through STMA. And um, I just thought that brought really great notoriety, the university and recognition for Craig and Leo and our crew. And obviously with being involved in the board, I, I, it's a gray area where I don't really want to muddy the waters and do any field of the year stuff or even apply. But I tell my guys, I tell my crew, like, y'all, we can apply, um, but I'm going to put it on you guys. I want you guys to take the initiative to show the pride and start to develop, you know, that involvement. Um, but I always enjoy the awards because I think it's neat to see what people are doing and hear their stories and just, you know, the resiliency and resourcefulness of our industry and the people in it never ceases to amaze me. You know, I've done the scholars, I've done the scholarship committee numerous times too. Once again, that goes back to my commitment to students. So. Yeah. This past year was the first year that I was on a national committee. I think we were on both together on the learning initiatives committee. It was, it was great to, uh, you know, to hear your opinions on that committee and and how that was kind of steered and, and shaped and, how, you know, all these different committees that you've been on, how has that shaped your your current vision or your current hopes to where STMA can move into the future? Yeah. So, I mean, if not more than anything, it just kind of, it's given me the contextual background to kind of know what we've done or what we've been trying to do and um, trying to figure out where we go from here. I have to say, you know, my vision today is probably different than it would have been had 2020 been a normal year. So, you know, this last year was there's so much unknown and everything kind of, I always say 2020 was kind of a pause button for us as an association. And you hope we didn't lose a bunch of, of traction, you know, but a lot of our people, there were unknowns and there were struggles and, you know, you guys, minor leagues, we didn't know what was happening with minor league teams with the talk of contraction that ended up happening and, you know, and, you guys didn't get to play a season last year. So your budgets are going to be heavily impacted for years to come. And how's that going to affect your ability to be involved with the association? And, you know, that's, that's universal across all the membership categories. There were so many unknowns from this last year that, you know, right now my number one goal is like, let's get, let's get back on track. Let's, let's get them our momentum going again and get back to where we were. And, but I, I will say I'm not going to stop there uh, because I look at 2020 and what we were able to do as an association and how we were still like, we found ways to connect with our members and provide value, whether that was the road to recovery guide that, that we were able to put together a task force and put that out or whether it was the town hall meetings that we did and using zoom technology now, and basically, you know, being able to interact and talk and see each other face to face and have these conversations and share information. Um, I thought all that was really, really cool. And, you know, that's something I want to build on is like, we've got some really, 
we have an opportunity and, you know, we've kind of left technology to the side for all these years. And like, we've got all these great resources out there. Let's that we started to use, let's keep building on that. Let's continue to do it. And let's, let's find what other ways we can, you know, add value to our members, get it, whether that's information or connections or, um, you know, whatever it is. So uh, I, I talked about with my interview with the, the sports field management magazine, like we're at a point where, you know, the sky's kind of, kind of the limit. We can choose where we want to go from here. Um, and so that's kind of exciting to think about. And uh, I'm really looking forward to getting together with our board. We're in a, we're at a year where we're due to build a strategic plan. So it times out really well um, where we'll meet and we'll kind of create our strategic plan and vision for the association for the next two to three years. Hopefully we'll get to sit down and do that in person here. Probably this summer is my hope that we'll be able to actually meet in person. But yeah, so that's the big thing is build out our vision for two, three years. What do we want to be? Where do we want to go from here? How do we continue to make sports field management uh, a relevant career path for, for people? How do we get people interested in it? Um, what are we doing to do that? Uh, how do we get the profession recognized? Um, I always tell people a lot of times I look at STMA is still really a young association when you think about it. I mean, we're only 30, 32 years old. Um, so like when you compare that, you know, your natural comparison is to GCSAA and they've been around for a hundred plus years now. So we're still really young. Um, and I, I, I always tell people, I'm like, we're probably, I'd say we're 15 to 20 years behind the GCSAA. So, you know, where we are now is where they were in the year 2000, you know, and you've watched that association and their membership and, the recognition for golf course superintendents slowly get build and uh, build up and be more recognized. And I, I think and hope the pay and salary for them has started to come. And so that's what I hope we see as our association is we keep working in that direction of we work down this path of being recognized as, as a needed professional, that we are a professional, that we're highly skilled individuals. And, and as such, um, you know, the compensation should recognize that and, you know, just, just what an important role a sports field manager plays in all of these events that these multi-million dollar athletes are playing on and they're multi-million dollar events for communities. And, you know, I always tell people, you can't play a game without the field. I think, I think what you, to speak to that point, Nick, I think it's, I think we're actually in a really awesome place right now with STMA and, and I'll speak to minor league baseball in particular, you know, a lot has happened in the last 18, 20 months uh, from a minor league baseball perspective. And I, I feel multiple calls a week, uh, half of the last month, six weeks from general managers from minor league baseball teams. Obviously there is a huge hole right now in, in minor league baseball um, in terms of hiring qualified employees. A lot of that's being dictated by the new PDL that came down for facility standards for major league baseball. And I think that STMA can play a huge role in that with those new facility guidelines. And to my point with, with general managers reaching out to me, a lot of them, the, the first place I tell them to turn is to STMA. And so a lot of those, a lot of those people are, you know, they knew what STMA was. They may have had a sports turf manager who was a member, but they kind of saw it from the, from the sideline, so to speak where now they don't have that person in place. So they're actually the ones who are having to, to do the interaction with STMA and get the jobs posted and, and in turn, hopefully place qualified people into those 
positions. And so I think that from a, from a management level, it's really as bad as this has all been. I think it's really from, from their perspective, kind of open their eyes to what we offer as an organization. And, um, I, I, I just think it's outstanding that, that we have the ability to help facilitate, uh, not just minor league baseball teams, but everybody out of this time that they've been in where, uh, they're trying to place people. I, I like hearing that and, and hearing that role that, that you see at CSTMA playing and that moving forward. Yeah. And, and, and you know, I've, I've had the, you know, Nicole Sherry and I, who's, you know, she's mm-hmm. the professional board rep. Um, she and I have had that conversation about, you know, these guidelines that are coming down from major league to all you minor league guys. And I mean, part of that guideline is to have a, to have a, a degreed person in that role, uh, whether it be through a degree program or through a certification program, which a lot of our universities now are offering a certification program. And I think there's been some talk at the national level to offer a certification program as well. And Nicole and I have, have had some conversations that have probably been passed on to you. Uh, That's why I mean, I'm, I'm hoping we can, sir, we can play a role in that. And that's, that's the hardest thing I always tell people. Uh, that's, I told her, I'm like, um, you know, we've been trying, STMA has been trying for years to get in front of these, to get major league baseball, to, you know, have these conversations with us, to NFL, to have these conversations for, you know, the athletic directors groups, whether that's high school or college, like let us get in front of these groups so they know we exist and then build a relationship and, you know, start that education process of, you know, y'all should have this educated, trained professional manager to, to manage your resources and protect your, your athletes, um, and your field investments. So I'm hoping that's a conversation that, you know, this is maybe opening that door with, with major league baseball. And, um, I think a lot of it too starts on the local level with the local chapters. I mean, Robbie and I are both very involved in the North Carolina chapter and Clark in the South Carolina chapter, but you know, from a North Carolina chapter standpoint, I mean, we're, we're, we're pushing internally to get in front of those, those groups that you talk about and, and the, the high school athletic directors and the high school coaches. And, um, you know, a lot of those, a lot of those individuals are actually the ones who are taking care of their facilities. Absolutely. And, and let them know that, um, there's a place that they can turn to, uh, if not at the national level, at least at the local level starting out. And, um, there's a lot of resources available to them. And, it's kind of it, Robbie likes to call it that grassroots kind of initiative that that we take on. But I mean, it, while we're talking about the the state chapters and the national organization association, how how do you see the state chapters kind of fitting into the big picture? I mean, I know that you've you've served on the board of two different states, and you know, just talk to that a little bit if you don't mind. Yeah, that's the the state chapters. That's such a such a challenge um just because every every chapter has their own situation we've got some chapters that are are really really strong and they operate pretty seamlessly on their own and um you know the carolinas are really really strong new england texas we go back and forth some you know um we'll we'll think we're doing really good and then we kind of fall back so it's hard to manage or approach the chapters there's no cookie cutter template that's going to work for everyone. So that's, that's where it gets really, the the waters get kind of muddy is how do we, you know, to me, the national is we're here to support chapters however we can, just because, you know, they're, they're our boots on the ground. Like you said, that's where we can make the most traction is it's hard for us to do 
nationally everywhere. Like we can't be everything to everyone everywhere. And so we need the chapters to be our boots on the ground, to be our, our grassroots initiative. So that's kind of where I, I envision the chapters is uh, we've, we've just got to keep finding ways to build and strengthen our chapters. However, that is, whether that's giving them resources or support or, you know, and, and everybody's situation is going to be different, but then uh, also give them the resources to go out and get in front of these groups. And, um, you know, I think, if we can get the exposure at the local level, that's what is going to build, help us build the national level. Yep, absolutely. Um, it's got to start, like you said, locally, because there's, I mean, we're, a, we're an association at a national level of 2,700 members. I mean, there are tens of thousands of people out there managing K through 12 and parks and recs like facilities that should be a part of our association some way or another, but, but they aren't. And uh, I don't know whether that's, we can't reach them or we haven't shown them the value yet, but um, I think we do that first at the local level, just because it's easy. It's there. Um, And then, uh, then, you know, you hope you can start pulling some of that into the national level, but yeah, I mean, I, I think the two have to be very, symbiotic and supportive of each other. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's good stuff. Um, there's, there's just so many, so many resources, uh, that we can afford to people. Um, it's just getting out there and hopefully, um, hopefully we can play a huge role in that coming out of all of this. So that's, uh, I mean, you know, we're, we're coming out with, uh, here, hopefully in the next few weeks, we took on, uh, developing a national BMP uh, template here through STMA and we're getting near completing that, I think. And I hope we're about to release that here in the next couple of weeks. Uh, but that's the intent behind that program is we're going to allow that. We're, we're, the plan is for the chapters to be the dissemination force for that. Um, just because, you know, my best management practices here in Texas are going to be different than y'all's in the Carolinas, um, which will be different than the people up in New England. Um, so it's got to be able to be kind of tweaked and customized for each regional location. Um, so, you know, that's we are, we are anxiously anticipating it. Can I yeah. Just, so, you know, that's one of the things we're I'm uh, excited about. It. I, I can't wait for the national template to come out. We've had some uh, work with uh, BMP documents here and, uh, I'm, I'm excited for the national temple to come out and see what that's going to look like. Yeah. They're like I said, it's, it's going through the final revision stage right now, but yeah, it's, uh, I think it's going to be great to have something that's kind of standardized across our industry and across the country, but everybody can still take it and tweak and customize it for their specific situation. And, um, you know, that, that group's put in a lot of really good work here the last year and a half. And so, yeah, excited to have that hopefully come out here, um, it's supposed to be early March is what we're hoping for. So it should be real soon. Fantastic. I, I was going to, I was going to touch on, uh, education and educational opportunities, not so much for continuing and, and people that are in the industry now, but where do you see STMA going to get our next group of, of, of sports turf managers? I mean, where, where are we going to go to get that? I mean, we, I know there's some initi- initiatives out there, to try to reach the young people uh, or, or what are some of those? I know y'all talked about being on a, uh, the uh, initiatives committee. Uh, what are some things that maybe we're looking forward to coming down the road to try to engage some, the future generation? 
Yeah, so that's, you know, that's been big on my mind here in the last probably year and a half, two years, um, is figuring out where do we find our next generation of, of sports field managers because, you know, the turf grass program numbers are at our universities are seem to be dwindling. You keep talking to guys, it's getting harder and harder just to find interns or people to come work that have turf grass interests or backgrounds. So that's been our big debate. You know, we did develop uh, kind of the, we've got the learning initiatives committee now, and that's kind of been our prevalent topic of discussion is, you know, who do we go after? Who do we approach? I've argued for a couple of years now with you and my background, Clark, you know, I've had these discussions that FFA is a natural tie-in, but trying to figure out how to crack that egg and get involved there has been the most challenging part. Um, It's a natural fit because you've got kids that are already potentially interested in the agricultural side of the industry, um, but it's moved away from just production egg. So it's not cows, plows, and sows anymore. There, there's so many urban programs now um, that they're looking for, whether it's horticulture or uh, aquaculture, or, you know, they've got greenhouses. And so there's natural tie-ins there and just trying to figure out how to get there. So whether that's through the FFA, whether that's through the National Ag Teachers Association, I keep Going back to that numerous times, we've also, you know, we're looking at conversations of we're trying to figure out how to get in front of, you know, these high school kids. There's however many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of kids that they're like you, me, all of us, like we played sports, but at some point we weren't going to be good enough to continue to play at the next level. I don't know. Maybe you guys were, I don't, for all I know, Matt was a a minor league baseball player. So negative. (laughs) That is a big negative. <laughs> but, you know, um, a lot of these kids, they want to be around the game or, you know, they're passionate about sports. And how do we how do we get in front of them and let them know, hey, here's a way that you can still be involved in the game, still be involved in the industry uh, when you can't play anymore. So and I've had this conversation. I've had this conversation with college baseball players. They'll be like, hey, can I you know, can I can work for you if I stop playing? And I'm like, sure. Like, keep playing, though, as long as you can, man, because give it all you got. But yeah, time's up and this is something you want to do. Let me know. I'd love to get you that exposure. So we're trying to figure out, you know, how do we approach getting in front of those programs? And, um, you know, to me, I want to get, I want to find a way to get in front of the, the national athletic directors association, just to, like you said, a lot of those guys are the ones doing their field maintenance. A lot of athletic department or, or athletic directors at the high school level are also a coach, in some form, whether that's football or baseball. And as the coach, a lot of coaches are taking care of their own fields. So, you know, do we get them involved and they find the resources STMA has and, you know, a lot of them use their teams to help maintain their fields. And so just the biggest thing right now is trying to figure out how to get that exposure. Um, you know, we've got, we've got our own curriculum that, that we've developed a number of years ago. I'm trying to figure out where we, how we utilize that best. Um, you know, I want to find groups. I, I've started doing a little bit of research work and trying to get in front of uh, some career and technical education groups and figuring out, you know, that's, that's an easy tie in for, you know, I, I think you're starting to see the message that college isn't for everybody. So if we can figure out a way to create a program, uh, a trade skills program, potentially that could 
shoot kids into this. That's a gray area for me because I also, you know, what I want to do, I would love to do something like that. I also don't want to steal or limit kids from going on to our universities, whether that's because we've got a lot of really good two-year programs out there that are kind of doing that already. The four-year option might not be for everyone, but there's a lot of really good two-year programs out there and certification programs, like you guys mentioned. You know, we're seeing a lot. I mean, I'll speak for minor league baseball, especially, and even even major league baseball people that I've talked to, but we're seeing a huge influx of sports management majors yep. that, that want to come in. Um, I, I, I don't really know. I can't put my finger on why that is, but over the past couple of years, I would say that probably 75% of the resumes I get are for the sports management majors. Um, some of the best employees that I've, that I've ever had that have gone on to great careers in, in the sports turf industry were sports management majors in college. Um, so it'd be nice, you know, it's, it's tough, right? Because a lot of, a lot of the States have maybe one four year, four year school that, that has a turf program. Yep. But, then, you know, take North Carolina, for example. I think there's 16 state-supported schools. I, I don't know how many of them offer a sports management degree, but a lot of them do. So the accessibility to that degree program is so much more than than a uh, than a turf management degree in general. So, Yeah, that's one I guess I hadn't really thought about. Is there a way to get a tie-in with these sports management programs, even if it's just a four-week exposure? Yeah. I, I always tell our facility, like, we have, we have a sports management degree down here and, you know, I think it's important for them to recognize and learn about what we do just because whether that's no matter what role they're going to go into in sports management, that's going to be a component of be, what yeah, they Absolutely. Do. There'll be some overlap there. So, um, so sometimes, you know, we have a lot of overlap amongst our, our groups um, within our infrastructure here where those those students get a little bit of exposure. They don't necessarily come work for us, but they at least see and hopefully start to get an understanding of the work that our group does. Um, yeah, you know, I wish I had a I wish I had a silver bullet answer, Clark, for that one. Um, like I said, that's one I've been struggling with for a couple of years. We have. Uh, we're starting kind of an, a, an apprentice program through national STMA that we're hoping to, to reach out. And if nothing else, it's mostly just, it's not even, it's just to expose students to the potential of something in the sports field industry. You know, we're not requiring them to even work on a field. It's, it's more or less, we want you to know this is a viable option for you out there. Um, and I think that's one we hope to kind of target towards that, that high school athlete that doesn't necessarily know what they want to do, but really enjoys sports and um, wants to still be involved somehow, even though their skills might not allow them to continue playing the game. So. Okay, so we, we've talked a lot about your career and your current job and STMA. What do you like to do when you're, you're not doing sports turf? Yes. I'm a workaholic, unfortunately. So, and some of that, like I enjoy my job. So that makes my job really easy to do is I tell people that if you can find something that you truly enjoy, it makes work a lot easier to go to. I do enjoy my time. I'm kind of a homebody. Honestly, I'm a little bit of an introvert. I'm not the person that's just going to go talk to any random person uh, in a room. That's my wife. She's the social butterfly and I'm, I'm kind of the wallflower, but uh, you know, the schedules we keep a lot of times, I just, I'm happy to do nothing a lot of time, you know, just sit at home and, 
scalp my lawn down because I haven't mowed it in a week or two. And <laughs> I did pick up like over the pandemic, I uh, started to pick up woodworking a little bit, which reminds me of work a lot just because it's very meticulous, detailed, but it's, it's very uh, like visually rewarding. It's kind of like working on a field you walk into with a blank slate and when you get done with the project at the end of it, it's kind of fun to step back and see what you were able to make and build. So I'm not a, prof- I'm not even close to a professional, but my wife kept coming to me. She, she'd be like, find things on Pinterest. She goes, could you build this? And I'm like, if I had the tools, I'm like, you know, let me go buy thousand dollars worth of tools. Uh, over time, I kind of started building up my tool repertoire and I'm like, yeah, I think I can do that. So she'll bring me pictures and like, I want you to build me this. I want you to build me that. So with the downtime we had, during uh, this last year where I was only kind of working 40 hours a week, um, work on the garage and my kind of little wood shop that I'd made on weekends. So I've kind of fallen out of that habit here now that we've started athletic events since college, we played college football in the fall again, but I still go out and dabble in that every now and then. Um, Very involved. She has, my wife is a bleeding heart animal lover. So, um, she loves any and all animals and, and I, I like animals. Um, I'm very much a, a dog person. So we both, uh, we volunteer here locally with a couple of dog, different dog rescues. Um, so a lot of our time we spend fostering rescue animals in our house and we've got, well, we've got three of our own now, actually we had two, we just adopted a third one back in November, but yeah, so work a lot locally with foster groups and, you know, I like to get out and I, I would say I enjoy golf, but I'm so terrible at it. I probably only play a couple times a year, handful a year. I would love to go out and play more, uh, but that's kind of it. Like I said, I'm a sports junkie. So a lot of times, like in the fall, I'm happy to sit at home. Even when I'm not working, I'll sit at home and watch college football all day. <laughs> so I, being in Texas, I keep telling myself I probably should be buying a meat smoker and start getting into to smoking different meats, but I don't know if I have the patience for it. So I just smoking meats that. easy, man. You just throw it on there and crack a, a cold beer and work on another project. Go back to the smoker a little bit. You just, nice. you've, you've run through two of my interests and hobbies. It's, so. it's the whole thing. I got to be planned ahead where I'm like, man, I got to get that brisket in 14 hours before I want to <laughs> eat it. So um, yeah, I do more pork. And I've, and I've got so many really good options down here. Yeah, I'm like, I can try it and I can screw it up for three years trying to figure it out, or I can drive a quarter mile from my house and I've got one of the top 50 barbecue joints in the state of Texas. So I'm like, I don't need to. Why? Why reinvent the wheel? So I find it relaxing. I just sit there and throw the meat on and play with the wood a little bit. And you know, I started out with propane and have moved on to, you know, wood stick burners and Clark, Clark I love it, man. I love it. Mark <laughs> shaking his head at us. That ain't allowed. So no. Yeah. Like I said, I keep going back and forth and I'll probably eventually break down and, and buy myself a smoker, start dabbling in it. One thing I miss here in tech, like growing up in Iowa, obviously one of the leading hog producing States in the country, along with North Carolina, um, Pork isn't that big in Texas. So like I grew up on a hog farm. I thought growing up, I thought hamburgers were made from ground pork, to be honest, because that's all we ever had them from. So, uh, well, I was, I was going to say, Nick, I say you're talking about, it's a lot more expensive smoking that, that beef. Us yep. poor pig, our, yeah. us poor, poor pig farmers. We know that, that 
that pork is cheap, man. We can. Oh, and, and, but that's what I meant. Like, pork, no, almost. There's almost nobody down here that does like smoked pork, like a smoked pork shoulder or smoked pork loins. And I'm like, man, like that's what I miss. So that would be why I would get involved is to to make pork products, to be honest. So. See, I think I've done one brisket and I've probably done 15 pork butts. Yep. So. so that's that's where I'd be. You'd have to show them how his poor folk live. Eat, eat this right. pork. <laughs> the other white meat, Clark. That's right. So, that that might be your niche in Texas. Start could be. start smoking pork. I found one or two around here that you know they might have one thing. You know they'll do a, a shredded pork or like a pork butt shoulder. Yeah. But yeah, it's pretty limited. Well, before we let you go, we always like to put people on the hook and ask them uh, you know some of their biggest fails in their career. <laughs> so and I, I, it was interesting. I, I read the your article in Sports Field Management Magazine and. Uh, as you you know flip through, they went through the the photo quiz, so I passed through that, and I got to check that out. So, what uh, what what would be your photo quiz moment, and how did you Ooh, fix it? Wow, pick! I gotta pick. I gotta go through the list of all of the things I've screwed up. So, um, you know, I guess I had a I had a really big one this last fall, actually. Um, total space cadet moment on my part, getting ready for a football game and. We'd been, I think we'd gone two or three weeks. It was in for an October game. I think we hadn't played at home in two or three weeks. So most of everything that we had out there had kind of faded out. And uh, we had weather coming in. So we were pushing to get everything done. And in the heat of the moment, somehow I measured one side of the numbers for the entire field. So we, uh, what we'll do when we lay our numbers out is, you know, through college, the top of the number is 27 feet from the sideline. So rather than pull the tape measure four different times, we'll just measure from one sideline. So, you know, it's 27 feet on one side, it should be 133 feet on the other side. So I did the far side first, wind the tape measure back up. I got the 133 number in my head, get to the other side. And I'm still thinking 33, 33. So I marked the numbers at 33 feet for the top of the numbers on the other side. That's where we pulled our string. That's where we laid the numbers out. We painted them and because you, you couldn't see because of it was early morning, the light conditions were weird. You couldn't make out where the old numbers were anymore. Painted that entire side. And I was about halfway down the other side when my guy comes over and he goes, hey, you know, th- those numbers are at 33 feet, right? And I went, you're, you're messing with me, aren't you? And he goes, no. Well, this has been like, it's almost, those numbers have been down for almost an hour and the sun had come out. So paint was drying mm. uh, and I'm going, oh man. So literally in the next hour we got the, I'm like, stop everything we're doing, get all the buckets of water you guys can find. Um, so we're out there just on our hands and knees trying to scrub numbers out and we didn't get rid of like, you got rid of most of them, but there was still a shat. I mean, we took painters and put water back in them and tried to pressure wash them out, but you could still see a shadow. Um, but I joked that was for, uh, we we're actually playing on Halloween night. The game was, um, so I joked, I'm like, oh, I'm just making a Halloween effect. So we had ghost numbers, which happened to be on the, but they were on the, the camera side of the field. So I'm just like, Oh man, of all the times, um, that was my big one from this last year. Um, I always tell my students the story, uh, my first week on the job at Iowa State, they put me on, uh, we core the football field. Basically, 
were teaching me how to run the sweeper. We had a John Deere TC125 sweeper for for picking up the cores and, you know, they offset so that you're not running the cores over. So I go through, they show me how to run all this. And I don't know anybody or somebody at some point had opened up the, the right hand door of the tractor, you know, the sweeper offsets to the left. So, it, and then someone had opened up the right side door of the tractor and they left it open while showing me the controls. Well, I didn't know any better that I probably should close that. So my very first perimeter pass around the field, I'm sweeping. I've got the sweeper offset. So I'm actually not even, the tractor's not on the field. Well, our stairwells come down onto field level with this, with a rail. So I'm watching the sweeper on my left driving along. And all of a sudden I hear this boom, like crash, like just something like hits me all over the side of like my neck and face. And I look and I caught the door of the tractor on one of the handrails, bent it all the way back around, shattered the glass out of the door and the side window on the cab of the tractor. And this is like my first week. And Mike Andreessen's down on the other side of the field. I'm going, holy crap, I'm going to get fired my first week. And and I mean, Mike was so awesome. He's like, ah, it's not the first time that window's been broken. Won't be the last. He still makes fun of me and laughs about it. Cause he said, it's not, he sounded like, he said, it sounded like a gunshot from the other side of the field. And I just stopped him. So that was one that I always tell my students about. And then the other one I tell them is my very first week down here at A&M on the job. Similar story. Leo sent us out. To, he wanted us to go airify our football practice fields. And we've got two side-by-side fields set up. So at that point, we had a zone right down between the middle of the two fields. It was two separate zones, both of them with 180-degree heads. So I'm the new guy. I go out there with one of the other full-time guys. He's running the irrigation box and I'm just flagging the heads. Well, he forgot to turn on one of those middle zones. So I only flagged one of them. So then of course I ran the airifier right next to that row of heads and hit every single head in that line. Um, well, I, I say every, I got eight out of 10. I told Leo, I'm like, I would have gone 10 for 10 if the other two weren't up against the concrete, to be honest. But, um, He's like, boy, that's a, he goes, that's a $500 mess up in your first week. And I'm like, I don't even know they're there, man. So, and he goes, I was like, tell the guy who ran the box and didn't even turn the zone on, cut me a little slack. But I'm like, I I, I will admit I'm the one that hit him. But uh, that's when I always tell my students, cause I just like, those are the things I try and remind like, guys, I screw up as much. Like, I screw up just like you're going to screw up. And it's not you know, the biggest thing is let's acknowledge our mistakes and do what we can to fix them and, and move on. And, you know, we've had numerous other ones here and there. Uh, the worst feeling I've probably ever had to do is, you know, a night where I chose not to tarp the baseball field. And then we wind up getting hammered by rain unexpectedly and having to swallow your pride and walk into the head coach's office and, and go, uh, yeah, so I screwed up. Um, you're not going to be able to get out there to practice today. Uh, we, you know, we're, we've done everything we can and it's, it's not happening. Sorry. Um, that's where, uh, you hope you've built up enough rapport from all the other, other days where you've pulled out miracles for them, that there's some forgiveness there, but that's a, that's a tough prideful moment to swallow your pride and walk in there and say, yeah, I really screwed up. Um, I did that two weeks ago. I ran <laughs> a, a full irrigation on a 26 degree morning and froze my baseball and softball field and had to go to my coaches and apologize for ruining their first day of practice. Yeah. So that happened. The, the snow we had back in January, um, you know, 
got a little cock. Like they were only calling for one or two. Like we left on Friday. It was supposed to come snow over the weekend. At that time, it was like, oh, we might get an inch, half an inch to an inch, no more than two. Um, so I'm like, oh, we'll be fine. Like, don't need to tarp it. Snow around here normally lasts. Like, it snows, and by noon the next day, it's normally gone. So go home. You know, most of the crew's gone that weekend. And uh, Sunday rolls around. We get six inches of snow. Um, instead of the one to two that was forecasted. And then it uh, stays cold enough that it actually hangs around the entire next day, finishes melting on Tuesday. So it literally just slowly melted for two days straight into the infield. And that was the week we were supposed to start one-on-one skill instruction. And uh, it took us like days. Actually, we had a couple spots on the infield that started to pump. Like they just... They were dry on top, but you got two inches down and it was just mush. Um, so like trying to work through that and getting the coaches to, you know, they're, they're well, you, no way you guys are making it Omaha then. So, no way you missed the, you missed, you missed the first day of skill work. We, uh, we still got them out there. Um, I just said like, you got to avoid these spots. Unfortunately, the, the, the spots were right by the bases. I mean, we tried everything that like I tilled them up. I core aerified my infield trying to get air down there. I mean, I did it all trying to get that thing worked out. And I'm like, you know what, next time it's going to snow, we're putting the tarp on. I don't care if it's a quarter inch. I'm like, I ain't, I ain't playing this game. So the problem was that was the first significant moisture we'd had on it since we had laser graded. So I don't know if we just didn't get everything thoroughly compacted or if it was all the new dirt we'd added or what, but yeah, I mean, the list could probably go on and on, but they're all, I always tell my guys, it's like, Mistakes are going to happen. The question is, do you learn from them or do you repeat them? Um, you know, so I think as long as, as long as we're learning from them, they're, they're growing opportunities. There's things we learn not to do. How do we do it different? How do we get better? So that's kind of how I always approach it. But a lot of good laughs after the fact, when you can look back on it in the moment, you're like, Oh, well, we really appreciate having you on today and uh, all your insight from, you know, your early career and, STMA and you know we look forward to a, a much better 2021 than we had in, in 2020 so you know we really appreciate it and and thank you for joining us as do I thanks for having me on here guys I'm uh said it's fun to fun to join you I've been uh following this since you guys started it and um glad to be involved and looking forward to getting out and seeing you all here sometime hopefully in the next year so I'm gonna try and make it to the y'all's conference in november so uh great sounds good love to have you looking looking forward to that and looking forward to a great year so let me know if there's anything we can do to help y'all as we as the year progresses awesome thank you nick thanks nick thanks guys y'all take care 